Corinthians chapter 12, please. First Corinthians 12. Lord God, we just ask you to meet with us now, as always, for your glory, Lord, the upbuilding of your son's body, the salvation of the lost. We ask you to use your word by the power of your spirit to equip us as followers of Jesus. In your service, Lord God, in Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and let no one say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. Why does Paul begin speaking about spiritual gifts? By reminding the Corinthians of their pagan background. Why does he begin by speaking about spiritual gifts, specifically charismatic gifts? By reminding them of their pagan background. Do we have anyone here from Asia, Far East, anyone from Africa? Were you from an Africa, please? Which country? Where? Zambia. Have you ever seen which doctor? You've not seen which doctor. Sister, have you seen a witch doctor? In Africa. You've never seen an authentic witch doctor. Okay, you've seen them. Do they prophesy? The witch doctors give prophecies. You've heard of it. Do they pray in tongues? So do some Christians. Witch doctors pray in tongues. Mormons pray in tongues. Spiritists pray in tongues, but they say it's tongues. Buddhist monks prophesy. Mormon bishops have revelations. Occult practices counterfeit the gifts of the Spirit. What Paul does here is he reminds them of their pagan backgrounds because he wants to distinguish the authentic from the occult powers from which they were saved out of. Don't let anyone ever tell you that there's not supernatural events happening in the occult. All those magicians counterfeited the miracles of Moses and Aaron. The fact that the Antichrist and false prophets will do pretended signs and wonders do not mean that they are not things that occur contrary to what we understand to be the laws of natural science. They are pretended because of the source of the energy or power on back of them. They pretend to be from God. Paul begins talking about the gifts of the Spirit, not about the authentic, but by reminding them of their pagan background. ESP, fortune-telling, these things are counterfeits the word of wisdom. Healings, people are healed in Christian science. Now, here's the thing. 
Be careful of the deception. Remember I told you Pilate said Luther. What Copeland says. Copeland's theology says this. For every real there's a counterfeit. True. Therefore, he says, for every counterfeit there must be a real. So instead of beginning with the Word of God, the first and foremost defense against ever the knowledge of the truth, instead of beginning by the Scripture and God's revelation of Himself and who He is and what He wants and what He wants us to know and what, what He wants us to do, instead of beginning with Scripture and looking at the real, these people begin looking at the counterfeit. So they wind up saying, well, so what if what we're doing resembles what Buddhists do or what Hindus do? For every real, there's a counterfeit. Yeah. But for every counterfeit, it doesn't mean there's a real. You understand? You begin with what's real. You begin with what's biblical. You begin with what's scriptural. Once you begin with the Word of God and saying what's real, what's authentic, what does the Word of God teach? Then you're in a position to pick out counterfeits. The easiest way to pick out counterfeit money is to compare it to a real bill. The easiest way. I don't know how they do it in Britain, but the American Secret Service, they go around and they show people counterfeits and they hold up the real and they say, this is the real one, look at it. Now look at the counterfeit. Which one is counterfeit? And most people can pick out the counterfeit bill simply by comparing it to one they know is real. What these people are doing is beginning with the counterfeits. And they say, because of the counterfeit, because the New Age does something, or because Hinduism does something, or because the occult does something, therefore there must be a real. You understand? They're beginning on the wrong premise. You begin with the Word of God. Parasoglusin. Laying truth aside forever. No, you begin with the Bible. You don't begin looking at counterfeits. You begin looking at the real. That's your beginning point. That's where you commence. Then he goes into his discourse about gifts and their purpose. Verses 5 and 6. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord, but there are varieties of gifts in the same Spirit. Once again, the purpose of the charismatic gifts, if you want to call them that, these nine, are to equip people for their ministry. I remember one time in New York, it only happened to me a couple of times, and a girl got into a taxi cab, and I just said to this girl out of nowhere, you're going to a fortune teller, aren't you? And you're getting more involved with this fortune teller who's telling you about the future. And you're looking for happiness in your life and meaning, relationships. This fortune teller has been telling you this. You can freak out. How did you know that? But I didn't know it, but God knows. He told me, you're Jewish, aren't you? I said, yes. And I said, well, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. God wants you to repent and accept Jesus as the Messiah and get away from that fortune teller. It's witchcraft. Your Torah calls it Mashafut. Now, something like this has only happened to me a few times as a Christian. Once again, a pastor, know the condition of your flocks, frequently pastors will have the gift of the word of knowledge. Evangelists, 
frequently will have discernment of spirit. A prophet, the word of wisdom. Your ministry and the nature of your ministry and the time and circumstances of your ministry will determine the allocation of the gifts God gives you according to his will. And there are varieties of effects. But the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 9, Verse 11, the emphasis is never on the gift or the manifestation, but on the Spirit, on the Lord, on God. Never when the Bible speaks about spiritual gifts, does it put the emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit, it puts the emphasis on the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus. As we've said many times, except when he's worshipped in the context of the triunity of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is never prayed to in the Bible. He's never lifted up. He's never exalted. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. None of it is biblical. None of it. Man's invention. Look what it says. Verse 3, it emphasizes the lordship of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. In other words, authentic Holy Spirit activity will always lift up the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit will point people to Christ, not to himself. Do you see that? So when people begin looking after the gifts instead of the giver, they wind up with a false pneumatology, a wrong theology of the Holy Spirit. So the emphasis is shifted from Jesus to the Holy Spirit, with people not realizing the Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. As a result, what gets in is the counterfeit the futility and deception of their own mind. People begin prophesying, but it's not prophecy. People begin giving words of knowledge, but they're not words of knowledge. People begin praying in tongues, but it's not tongues. The centrality of Christ is always the issue. The Holy Spirit always points people to Him. And the emphasis is always on the giver, never the gift. When do people go wrong? When they take their eyes off Jesus. When do they go wrong? When they stop following what the Bible says and begin making up their own as they go along based on their experience, tradition, or preference. Verse 7. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
Oh boy. Or the common good. Remember what I said yesterday last night? A gift is better to a person, it's through a person to the body. The Holy Spirit's emphasis is always on the body, never on a person. For the common good. When you see people using a gift or an alleged gift, and remember what it said in Proverbs, he who boasts about a gift falsely? To somehow make themselves a celebrity or lift themselves up. That is the abomination spoken of in the book of Numbers 30. They make perfume to perfume themselves. You understand? I'm familiar with the, the teaching about the anointing in, in Numbers 30. Uh, it was an abomination to give your anointing to somebody else. Totally contrary to Toronto, of course. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. The word of wisdom. The word of wisdom has to do with knowing the mind of God in a manner. Knowing the mind of God in a manner. Some people call it a gift of utterance. They usually break these things down to gifts of power, gifts of inspiration, or some kind of gift of utterance. When somebody can tell the future by the Holy Spirit, when they can look at the situation of a nation, of a people, of the church, and God can show them the spiritual state of it, that is the first step. That is the telling. When they know where it's heading to and what it's going to become of it, that is the foretelling. When you hear somebody saying, I have a prophecy, and it's predictive, the gift being manifested is primarily the word of wisdom. To know the mind of the Lord in a manner. Look at Daniel. Look at Ezekiel. Look at Jeremiah. What did they know? They knew the mind of the Lord in the situation in which they were. The Bible gives us <coughs> the general truths, the general principles, the doctrinal foundation. Whatever God does will be in tune, in harmony, and in character with what's in his word. That's the first test of the word of wisdom. Is it in harmony and in character and in doctrine? Is it doctrinally compatible with the scripture? With that foundation, a genuine prophet can prophesy even about the future. You look at the people who get things right once again. I will say to the north, give them up. These guys, like Steve Ryle, got it right because it agreed with Scripture. 
the way God said to the prophets of old, I will bring destruction upon these nations quickly. Look how quickly in the book of Daniel, Daniel foresaw whole empires, massive empires, collapsing overnight. Look how quickly the Babylonian Empire fell. Bang! Look how quickly the Media Persian Empire fell. Bang! Look how the Greek Empire fragmented and fell. Bang! Look how quickly the Soviet Empire fell. Bang! My grandparents were from the north of England. If you told my grandparents that in their lifetime the sun would set every 24 hours on the British Empire, they would say, you are crazy. Look how quickly the British Empire collapsed. You can predict something's going to happen, but is it in character with the way God has always worked? Is it in tune, in harmony with his patterns? Well, the answer is, in those cases, yes. But then you'll see other people saying crazy things that have no precedent in Scripture. Particularly, again, the restorationist-type people, the Kingdom Now people, the triumphalists. They say things that are totally out of harmony and out of character with the way God has always worked. They always say he's going to do a new thing. God may do a new thing, but it will always be in tune, in harmony, in character with the way he has always operated. You understand? He's begathered Israel before. The word of wisdom. It's not only knowing about a nation or a people. It could be the situation of a church or an individual. Remember when Paul was going to Jerusalem? This is what will happen. He ties himself up with adults. You simply know the mind of the Lord in a manner. You have the specific sense of the word of wisdom. But it will frequently come in a prophecy, but not necessarily. For instance, the same as you have many charismatics and Pentecostals standing up and thinking they are actually practicing this of the Spirit, but it's their own mind, you have many people who would not define, at least some people, who would not define themselves as charismatic or Pentecostal, who are genuinely practicing this of the Spirit, but they don't know that's what it is. I know a brethren elder and a brethren congregation. The man has the gift of the word of wisdom. He doesn't know that's what it is, but he does. If somebody stands up in a Pentecostal church and prophesies in King James English and says, My people, have I not called you to be my witnesses? Have I not told you to go out, my people, to the highways and byways, and invite many to the marriage of my son? And he gives a prophecy like that. And somebody stands up in the Brethren Church or the Baptist Church and says, I've been praying about our fellowship, and I believe the Lord put it on my heart to share that we're not being faithful to the Lord and our evangelist. Is there a difference? No, there is no difference. The packaging is superficial and irrelevant. 
the word of wisdom. A word of wisdom may come in a prophecy, or it may come in another way. I've had words of wisdom, but not necessarily prophetically. There was some times I did. There was a time in New York, and before Baker and all these guys, the scandals happened. We were in the Lambs Club in New York, and I prayed, I prophesied about the leaders, and this was going to happen. And then after that, just before the thing with, with Baker happened, I had this prophecy in Israel. It was at an English meeting in Israel. It was Levin and Zion. And, and it okay, that happens. But, again, it doesn't have to be that way. The last newsletter I had, I told people that the Toronto thing was going to lead to immorality. And they were going to see outbursts of immorality that would be publicly documented and well-known. And it was not any more than two months, three months after that when this 9 o'clock service thing came in Sheffield and the, the police raided the London Healing Mission and all this stuff and they found all this sexual stuff going on. Now, I don't say I had any great revelation or picture. I had a witness in my spirit that I was able to say, these are what happens in the patterns of Scripture. You understand? And I was able to write it out in public and publish it and say, this is what's going to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to come in that way. It just has to come. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. When you know something accurately, for which you can have no plausible explanation for knowing. However, the devil knows only part of the future. He knows the past, and he knows the present. Words of knowledge can be easily counterfeited. That's why it begins by warning people about, A, their pagan background, but the people saw stuff like this in paganism. It's right to a Greek church. The Greeks had the Delphic Oracle. Did you ever hear the Delphic Oracle? They had people like this in Greek culture doing the same kind of stuff. He's saying, one, look at the Spirit, not the gift. And two, if it is the Spirit, it will point people to Jesus. When you see people pushing the gift instead of the giver, and if they are substituting the giver for the one the giver points people to, there's something wrong. You understand? And so many of these things you see going around, the miracle crusades and all this stuff, this gifted man and all this stuff. The gift is never amplified above the giver. And the giver points people to Jesus. All of these gifts can be and are counterfeited. Wisdom through the Spirit. The word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same. We have to distinguish between faith and the gift of faith. Every born-again Christian has faith. Paul says, 
he has a measure of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, you cannot get saved. You're saved by grace through faith. However, we do not all have the gift of faith. Although we all have faith. Let's look. Remember the gifts even existed before Pentecost in a primordial or an embryonic form. Let's look at one case of a man who had the gift of faith in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not seek death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. So one, this guy had the faith to know he was not going to die, no matter how old he was getting. He knew he would not leave this world until he saw Jesus. Even though he was getting older and more and more frail by the year, maybe even by the day. He knew he would not die. We all have a certain amount of faith. We all have faith to trust God for things specifically stated in his word. There is no Christian, by definition, that cannot have a measure of faith to trust God for things specifically written in his word. People with the gift of faith have, by revelation of the Holy Spirit, the capacity to believe God for things not specifically stated in his word. You understand? That doesn't mean they can just believe something. It means the Holy Spirit will show them something personally. Frequently, people with the gifts of faith, these are people given to intercessory prayer. They stand in the gap. They're the ones who see the breakthrough. No matter how desperate the situation becomes, they can take the burden on behalf of someone else and believe in faith the victory is going to be won no matter what the circumstances say. Because the Holy Spirit has shown them. You understand? Not everybody has the gift of faith. We all have faith. But not everybody has the gift of faith. People with the gift of faith, it means that the Holy Spirit shows them something that's going to be, and they know it's God's Spirit, and they can truly stand by it. When you see people going around saying they can claim it, that's rubbish. Simeon claimed nothing. God gave it to him. The only things you can claim are what's written in the Bible. You can claim what's in the Bible. If you don't claim anything not in the Bible, Now, faith becomes important, again, with other gifts, but we'll come to that. And to another, gifts of healing, it is curious, it is plural. Some have suggested it means that different people can pray for different kinds of disorders to be healed. Some people have said that. Why is this one plural? 
Others have related it to the fact that Jesus healed people different ways. It's like the story of three blind men. And they were having an argument. How does Jesus heal a blind man? And one of them says, the way Jesus heals a blind man is something like this. In Matthew, when Jesus comes into Jericho on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And there's a blind man named Bartimaeus. And Jesus is coming, and Bartimaeus is crying out. And he's saying to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? And he says, Jesus, I want you to heal me, in Matthew chapter 20. And they're saying, Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, what do you want me to do for you? We want you to open our eyes. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. How does Jesus heal somebody's eyesight? Oh, that's very simple. He touches your eyes, and then you can see. But then another man came along, and he began having a different argument. He says, no, that's not the way that Jesus heals people. This man we read about in John's Gospel. Chapter 9. A man blind from birth. And Jesus... He makes clay of the spittle and applies the clay to his eyes and says, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam. That's how Jesus heals a blind person. That's how he does it. But then somebody else comes along and says, No, that's not the way Jesus heals somebody who's blind. He doesn't have to do that. He just says something like, Your faith has made you well. And immediately they begin to see, as it says in Matthew eleven five. The point is Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. He does not necessarily Do it all at once. And he does not necessarily do it in the same way. We have one story in the Bible where first he prays for somebody and the man does not see it. But then Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Shemoah and then he comes back to see it. There was at least two phases to his healing of blindness. We have another account in the Bible where Jesus heals somebody in two phases, not just. Be careful when somebody says, 
This is how it happens. <laughs> the Lord meets people where they're at. Luke 5.17 The power was present for him to perform healing. You've heard me say it a thousand times. The dunamis was there. We can always pray for the sick. We can always anoint the sick with oil. But if you are going to tell someone to get out of a wheelchair, or if you are going to tell someone to get out of a deathbed, that power better be there for you in that situation. Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. There were many paralytics at the pool of Bethesda. He only healed one. Jesus did not go around laying his hands on everybody. Only the ones his father told him to. He never did that. He only healed the ones he saw his father telling him to. You can pray for the sick. You can anoint the sick with oil. But if you were going to tell somebody, get up out of that thing or this cancer disappear, that can happen if the Holy Spirit is telling you that in that situation. Be careful these people are telling you otherwise. Illness may cause sin. It says that in James, doesn't it? It also says the same thing in what is it, uh, Psalm 32. When I remained silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. But the idea that all illness is caused by sin, rubbish. Jesus said that's not true in John 9. And the idea that if someone doesn't get healed, they have no faith, that's rubbish as well. Notice, whenever Jesus healed someone, be it the paralytic, pick up your power and walk, or the blind, his emphasis was always on their repentance. On them coming to a living relationship with him by faith. He's never on the illness. In other words, we can feel compassion for the sick and for the infirm. But if you see someone in a wheelchair or on crutches, their main problem it's not that they are handicapped. Their main problem is that they're on their way to an eternity without the Lord. Their handicap is their second biggest problem. Somebody who loves Jesus who's dying of cancer is infinitely better off than someone who's bright and healthy who's not saved. Now I mention that at this point for this reason. The Dunamis was there. You can't go around giving waves of wisdom all the time. The prophets would pray sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months before they had the waves. The Spirit has to give it to you in this situation to meet the need on God's terms, in God's way, on God's time. Neither can you go around commanding people to get out of bedsteads or out of wheelchairs. The Lord has to be telling you to do that on His terms, in His way, at His time. Neither can you go around giving people accurate words of knowledge. The Lord has to be telling you that on His terms. 
similarly, you may have the gift of faith, but you can't go around believing God for anything that strikes your fancy. You can only believe God for things the Spirit reveals to you the way he did with Simeon. Let's continue. So remember the effecting of miracles. The gift of miracles. Sorcery is a counterfeit of the gift of miracles. Jesus would never put on a show. He would only do the miracles he saw his father telling him to do. Jesus never had a miracle crusade. He had a repentance crusade. When they wanted him to put on a show on Palm Sunday, he wouldn't do it. He would never allow these things. A wicked generation seeks to sign. One thing we have today is a wicked generation. People wanting a show all the time. Once in a while, I have prayed for people and they have been healed. I don't know that I have ever done a physical miracle. I don't know that the Lord has ever used me to do a physical miracle. But I'll tell you this. Where they happen or where the circumstances tend to demand it the most, Once again, every case of a healing in the Bible that we have a record of, that Jesus or the apostles or the prophets did, was something for which there was no known medical cure at that time. Everyone was something there was no natural remedy for. And miracles were done in circumstances that demanded. When I read the book or the, about the believers in Cambodia going cold hot to the killing fields, and they walked on water and they saw these miracles, yes, in extraordinary circumstances, God does extraordinary things. I have no problem with that. I believe he does those kinds of miracles. I honestly believe it. But in the Bible, these miracles were done in desperate situations. And today they're done in desperate situations. Forget about miracle campaigns. Even in the ministry of Jesus, they were there. But they were never a campaign. Never. In John's Gospel, he only does seven miracles. You know that? If you've seen the little old signs and wonders, Jesus only does seven miracles in John's Gospel. I would probably did a lot more before the books couldn't contain those things. And they're there, and they're given their place. But he never had campaigns based on it. Never. And whenever they happened, again, it was to meet a specific need in circumstances where the need could not be met otherwise. To another prophecy. Here it's talking about the gift of prophecy. What is the purpose of the gift of prophecy? Chapter 14, verse 3, once again. Edification, exhortation, and consolation. However, 
Let's look at Romans chapter 12. Verse 6, and since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, see that? The emphasis is on grace. Let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. It's interesting that the gifts of the Spirit, the charismatic gifts, the one associated with faith the most is prophecy. It requires faith to prophesy. You know why? It's wrong to suppress the Spirit, but it's better to keep something in your mouth than to let something go out of your mouth that's not from the Spirit. Once it goes out, it's too late. It requires faith. The Old Testament explains how prophecy works the best. Nasah, a burden. What it means is, you have a glass of water. Followed by a volumetric displacement. You put in an ice cube, and it causes something to well up. Unless that Nasah, unless the Spirit comes on you and puts this thing, you're not going to prophesy. Go around babbling in the flesh or giving place to an alien spirit. This Nassah, this burden of some kind, something must be put on you or literally in you. So often I hear people when they prophesy, they all describe it the same way and my experience has been similar. They feel it's something that comes from their gut and it comes up. That's exactly what Nassah, by putting an ice cube in the water. It's something that comes up. Unless the Holy Spirit drops the ice cube in the glass, nothing authentic is going to come out. You just be spraying water around, but nothing authentic. Nobody can go around arbitrarily practicing any of these gifts. It's what the Holy Spirit does in the circumstances. But let's continue. To another, the discerning of spirits. What I want to know is, if all these people who are into all this hyper-faith stuff, and this Kingdom Now stuff, and this ecumenical stuff, and this Toronto stuff, are so charismatic, where is the gift of discernment of spirits? Where is it? Anybody? who saw Tammy Baker on television with the gods and gods of makeup. And every time they called her husband a crook, which he was, she'd begin crying. And the black mascara going down her, her face looking like the bride of Frankenstein. Even unsaved people knew there was something not exactly kosher with those people. You mean to tell me Christians who are supposed to have the Holy Spirit? couldn't discern something was wrong? What they're calling gifts are not gifts at all. Where is the discernment? Now, how does discernment work? Some are ears, some are nose. 
The sermon of spirits determines what spirit is motivating somebody. We have a spirit. Our spirit is again motivated, either by the Holy Spirit or by some other spirit. Our spirit is motivated by the Holy Spirit or by another spirit. The sermon of spirits will tell you what's motivating another person. However, once again, the basis of it is Scripture. If someone is teaching or doing something contrary to the Word of God, that will automatically tell you there's something wrong. On the other hand, you can meet someone and find nothing doctrinally wrong. But you can still sense something is wrong. And later you find out it's true. But you have to be careful. Some people go around saying their discernment becomes the criteria. There's a wrong spirit. The Bible says do not bring a charge against someone without two or three witnesses. Okay? Particularly not against a leader. You need some proof of irrepentant immorality or serious doctrinal error to bring a charge. It's not enough to say, I discern something's wrong, so therefore because you think you discern it, that makes it wrong. It's something like this. Somebody goes into the surgery or into the clinic, and just based on his experience and intuition, more than his knowledge, the physician will say, there's something not exactly right. I don't know what it is. You almost sniff it out. Don't ask me how this works. You can see an off-duty policeman in a big city like London. And he's off-duty, and he's just in the supermarket loading his groceries into his car. And he sees a guy up the street hanging on the corner. And that policeman, he knows... That guy is going to break into that car. I just know it. How does that cop know this guy is going to break into the car? He can't even explain how he knows himself. Somebody walks into a clinic with a combination of symptoms that could be symptomatic of anything more than a hundred different disorders or maladies. And this experienced GP will hit the nail right on the head. This is he gets it right. How do we know? You can't really quantify how we knew. But he's right. You understand? How? How do we know? The sermon of spirits is like that. We know with our spirit, we understand with our mind. However, suppose this off-duty policeman in London knew this guy was going to break into the car and went up and arrested him before he broke in. The guy certainly would not be convicted, although the policeman might be, and rightly so. Suppose this person walks into the surgery and the doctor says, I know it's this, and he just commences treatment without proper tests to find out if his diagnosis is right. 
without having his diagnosis confirmed by lab tests, by biopsy, by blood chemistry, by whatever, he just makes a decision and begins treatment with potentially dangerous therapy. Would he do that? No, he wouldn't. Now, that does not discount the validity of his professional intuition based on his experience. It does not discount the validity of the policeman's experience. It tells him to look out for something and get ready for something. But you can't jump on the guy and arrest him until he actually breaks into the car. You can't begin some kind of major operation or some kind of major drug therapy or, or radioisotope therapy or whatever until you get the diagnosis confirmed. Well, the sermon of spirits is the same. It has its place. It's almost a mystery. You can't quantify it. That policeman doesn't know how he knows himself. But he just knows. He has a tuition. Don't rule under rule maternal instincts. A mother could be out working or something like that, and she can just almost sense intuitively there's something wrong with one of my children. I've got to call up. It's just something that's there. Now, these things are properties of the soul. We don't, may not be able to fully understand them, but discernment is not of the soul, it's of the spirit. But it works the same way. It'll tell you to look out for something. It'll tell you to look out. But it's not a basis for action in and of itself. But however, it'll tell the doctor where to begin looking for the system. You understand? It'll tell you where to begin looking. And to another, various kinds of tongues. Glossolalia in Greek, Lashonot in Hebrew, notice various kinds of tongues. Chapter 13, tongues of angels and of men. It is for that reason I am not happy to say that a tongue has to be a language known to man. How can you tell a tongue of angels if it's authentic or not? Various kinds of tongues of angels and of men, okay, and of different languages. Let's look at this most controversial of all subjects. Why are these gifts given? Verse 7, for the manifestation of the common now, doesn't Paul go on to say, though, in chapter 14, verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you would all spoke in tongues, but even more, that you would prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who prays in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit are not given to build up an individual. They are given to build up the church through an individual. Tongues is a partial exception. In order for tongues to be major, it must build up the body in some way. Now, you can pray in tongues, 
and it can meet your own circumstances. You may be confused, or you may know there's something you have to pray about, and you don't know what it is. And you use the gift of tongues because you can't pray with your mind, because you just don't know. That is personally edifying. But that is between you and the Lord. In order for tongues to be used for the common good, to build up the body, it must be understood. If it's not understood, it should not be done audibly. In other words, there was one time I met somebody in the Middle East. I had five words in a language I did not know, but they understood. And it was a word of knowledge about the person. It's the only time this ever happened to me. I had a word of knowledge about a person. I didn't know what these words meant. They did. It led to the person getting saved. Jewish person. I've heard of other cases. There's a lady in this room. I heard her praying once, and she came out with definite Hebrew words that were speak Hebrew. She said today. Words that were Hebrew. Doesn't sound like Hebrew. They were Hebrew. My wife and myself were at a meeting in London in 1991, and there was a woman from Mauritius praying in fluency. You speak it. In Israel, there was a man who didn't know that I spoke Spanish, but he didn't speak Spanish. He spoke Hebrew and English. And his English wasn't that good. Maybe he spoke Arabic too, I'm not sure. Jewish guy. And he prayed in beautiful Spanish. Sounds like the Psalms what he said. For it to edify the body, it must be understood. It has to be a human language. Or it has to be an interpreted angelic language. When Paul gives instructions, what does he say in chapter 14? Tongues are assigned not to those who believe, but to unbelief, and so on. But then he goes on to say, Only let two or three do it in order. If anyone speaks in the tongue, it should be by two or three in verse 27, and each in turn, and let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. <coughs> Unless the thing is going to be heard by others and either interpreted or it'll be in a language that somebody's going to understand, do it for yourself. I don't care what somebody does in that prayer closet. Tongues can be one of four things. Tongues can be one of four things. It can be purely psychological. I have no doubt that a lot of what people think are tongues are not tongues. It's just like a lot. Tongues can be demonic. 
Shia Muslims do it. Last Sunday, sorry, Sufi Muslims do it. Which doctors do it? Mormons do it. it can be demonic. Tongues can be learned or contrived. I actually know people who just say this political movement with plugins can be learned or contrived. Fourth, it can be some combination of the above. Or fifth, it can be an authentic gift of God's spirit. What somebody does in their prayer closet is none of my business. I don't care if they yodel. But what somebody does in a meeting has to be edifying to the body or else they should. And so it is with prophecy. Let two or three prophesy and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who's seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. When you see people prophesying and praying in tongues one after another all out like this, Paul says this is confusion. God is the God of order. How is that going to benefit the body? It doesn't. Secondly, it says, let it be tested. If somebody prophesies, it is to be tested. First of all, does it agree with Scripture doctrinally? Secondly, do you bear witness with it in your spirit? If a tongue is interpreted, it is the same thing. It has to be tested. Now, I don't mind if everyone's worshiping and people are paying tongues to themselves or singing. That doesn't bother me. But when you see they're yelling in tongues and all this is crazy. It's chaotic. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Verse 9, Parthians and Medians, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Verse 7, however, they were amazed. They were each one hearing them speak in his own language. So one, what they were saying was understood, wasn't it? They told the mighty deeds of God and it was understood each in their own language. Are not these men Galileans? Galileans spoke Aramaic. Didn't they? Look at Jesus on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic, not Hebrew. Halitatakumi, little girl, get up. Not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Galileans People from, from Galilee spoke Aramaic. Judeans spoke Aramaic. So if they were all hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own tongue, you cannot say necessarily that everybody in the day of Pentecost was praying in a different tongue. Because if there were Judeans present, and there were certainly other Galileans present for the pilgrim's feast, hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own language, then some of those people who were baptized in the Spirit must have been speaking their own language. Otherwise, how could the Judeans and the other Galileans have heard it in their own language? Understand? You cannot necessarily prove from the book of Acts they all spoke another tongue. 
You can't, because there were two days there. There were Galileans there. Their, their tongue was the same. What's proscriptive is proscriptive. What's descriptive is descriptive. There are places in the book of Acts when people were baptized in the Spirit and they spoke in tongues. There are other places in the book of Acts where people were baptized in the Holy Spirit and it doesn't mention tongues. You can't really draw a doctrine from something being descriptive. You have to draw a doctrine from what is post-scriptive. But even looking at what's descriptive, the way that the day of Pentecost is described, you cannot prove from the text that they all spoke another language. In fact, it would seem to be some of them could not possibly have Because how would you be day in the third in all time? Let's go back. The church of Corinth was a mixed-up, charismatic church. The church of Corinth had the same kinds of problems we have today in most of the charismatic movement. The first problem is party spirit, denominationalism. It was in Corinthians, it's here today. The next problem they have is that they should have been eating meat, but they're drinking milk. Look at the low level of Bible teaching in most Pentecostal and charismatic churches. People say 10 years, 20 years, 90 years, and they're still on Gerber. 1 Corinthians 3, I gave you milk, not solid food. You were not able to receive it. So first thing you see in Corinthians is they go chasing heroes. They go chasing men. What do you see today? Charismatic go chasing after men's ministries, don't they? That's what they're doing in 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 3, the next problem is baby food. A solid diet of nothing but baby food. Then the next problem, chapter 5, immorality. How come 90% of the time when a pastor runs off with a church secretary, it's one of our guys? How come 90% of the scandals and immorality are among Pentecostals and charismatics like myself? How come it's always our people? That's the way it was in Corinthians. That's the way it is now. Remember, proof of the spiritual life is not gifts. It's holiness. He's the spirit of holiness. Paul wasn't interested in their gifts. He was interested in holiness. The gifts didn't prove anything. Then lawsuits. They're threatening to sue each other. We had that, what's his name? Came out and threatened to sue me because he protested Randy Clark. What was his name? David Clark. And I threatened to sue me in front of eight people. When Lewis sent us a letter to our New Zealand office, he's trying to get Mike Evans to sue Moriel in New Zealand. <laughs> Advice on marriage? Oh, ho, ho. 
Divorce would have been unheard of among born-again Christians before the charismatic renewal. Today, now I don't, if you have an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife and they leave and run off with somebody, that's something else. But that's the only time you ever used to hear of it, is if you had an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife and they left you. You got this minister up in the Lake District. The Lord told him to walk out on his wife and marry a younger woman, and people will still follow him and let him be a minister. Then the danger of idolatry. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Remember the church of Thyatira? The woman Jezebel teaches my servants to eat food sacrificed to idols. Transubstantiation. Roman Catholics, they worship the bread and wine. They say it's Jesus Christ incarnate. Then they eat him? This is idolatry and cannibalism. In Corinth, you had people compromising with it, didn't you? And what do you have today? People compromising with it. Then he gets into the next problem. Misunderstanding and misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. The book of Corinthians is a book for today. The key is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is the tragedy. Look at First Corinthians fourteen, twenty-two and twenty-three. Tongues are a sign not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. Prophecy. It's for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe that therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues. And ungifted men or unbelievers answer, will they not say you on that? If unsaved people see the gifts of the Spirit being practiced in a disorderly or chaotic manner, they're not going to want to get saved. The gifts of the Spirit should be practiced in a way that the unsaved will want to get saved. But Paul puts the unsaved and the ungifted, the Greek word idioti, in the same set of brackets. Why? Is he saying that somebody who's not a charismatic or a Pentecostal is no better than somebody who's not saved? No, he's not saying that. Why does he say if the ungifted or the unsaved enter? He says it twice, he puts them together. The context tells us. Not only are we supposed to practice the gifts of the Spirit in an orderly and an edifying way so that God will use it to make the unsaved want to get saved, but the ungifted, the non-charismatic, will want to become charismatic. If these people see the gifts of the Spirit used in an edifying, scriptural, balanced way, and they see the real power of God being manifested in it, they'll want it. But when they see Rodney Brown and John Arnold and Kenneth Copeland, they say, that's your gift of the Spirit. We don't want it. You understand? Let's go back now and continue looking at this. To another interpretation of tongues. If it's a language that you understand, You don't need an interpreter. 
would appear interpretation of tongues has to do with angelic languages more than vernacular ones. Now, of a case where someone stood up and gave a prophecy or a word in tongues, and there was a missionary who'd been in China. This is in the 50s, but the missionary was in China in the 40s, during the war in that. I recall it. And somebody says this word in tongues, and somebody stands up and begins interpreting. And in fact, a missionary from China said this person was just blaspheming Jesus Christ in Cantonese. I know a case a few years ago, we had some Israelis in Canada. And this Israeli woman prayed. Avinu Sheva Shemaim, Yitkadesh Simcha, Tavo Malchutecha, Yisera Sonha Beshemaim Ken Ba'aretz, Et Lehem Hokeinu Kenlanu Hayum. And somebody stood up and gave an interpretation. And the Israelis said, I'm sorry, I was just saying the Lord, Lord's Prayer in my native Hebrew language. <laughs> they threw him out. The same as prophecies can be psychological, the same as tongues can be psychological, the same as words of wisdom can be psychological, the same as words of knowledge can be just your own mind, so can interpretations. You understand? It must be tested. First, doctrinally, but secondly, by the witness of the Spirit. You're responsible for it. Particularly prophecy, words of wisdom. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. If you go around giving somebody a word, you better make sure you're giving them God's word. You're not speaking something into their life that doesn't come from God and saying it is. You begin putting God's word, God's label on things that are not from Him. You're responsible for it. Okay? Again, some people would say the gift of faith, the gift of healing, and the gift of miracles, they call them power gifts. This is just the way that people go around putting it or classifying it this way. They would say it is gifts of inspiration. And then his gifts of utterance. The text itself doesn't classify them that way. Although I would accept there's some truth in it, I wouldn't take that truth too far. But finally, verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Once again, it's always the sovereign election of God to distribute these things as he wishes to. For even as the body is one and yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He begins appealing to the oneness of the body, being one body, as he did in the previous chapter, talking about the Lord's Supper. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. One faith, one baptism. 
whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, as he desires. Once again, it always emphasizes it's his sovereign election. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. The eye, the teacher, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. What he's obviously saying is he's comparing our physical bodies to the body of Christ. Paul, thinking as a Jew, is most certainly drawing on the Levitical teaching about seminal emissions and menstrual blood, which were controlled hygienically in the Levitical law. So because there was such strict provisions in Levitical law and the Deuteronomic legislation concerning seminal emission and menstrual blood. He's saying, well, these members seem unseemly, but look how much attention we give to these members. On the other hand, you don't worry about the other members of your body that much as you do worry about your genitals because you wash your face and that's all there is to it. Well, he takes this and he applies this thinking to the body, the church. In other words, just because you seem to be an I, and everybody knows you're the teacher, or just because you seem to be Christ's head of that situation, a pastor, or just because everyone knows you here and you have the gift to hear God's voice prophesy, just because everyone knows you have a big Jewish nose and you have a lot of discernment. That doesn't mean anything. What about the little old lady who washes the church steps? Give her the honor. She has the gift of health. What about the Christian businessman who works hard so he can support missions and evangelism? What's it say in Romans 12? In his service, serving. He who teaches in his teaching. He who exhorts in his exhortation. There's a gift of exhortation. He who gives with liberality. I know people. 
I honestly know people, Christian businessmen, that God has fostered them because he uses them to make money to help the poor, to pay for missions and evangelism. I know people. Now, it's always interesting when you see people like that, their own standard of living tends to be rather modest. <laughs> they don't tend to live extravagantly. The ones I've met, they live comfortably, but not extravagantly, generally speaking. He who leads with diligence, the gift of mercy. Again, medical missionaries will frequently, will, will inevitably be people who have the gift of mercy. I know it's taken some of these medical missionaries from the state, these guys could make a quarter of a million, a half million pounds a year in America. They go in the jungle someplace. Possibly God's calling to the mission field. People have the gift of mercy. Let love be without hypocrisy. For what's evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Why? Because the people with the highest gifts should be giving preference to the ones with the lowest gifts. The way the conspicuous members of a, of, of a Jewish person's body under the law, like their face, their eyes, and their hands, will be very concerned about menstrual blood and seminal emissions. You understand that's Paul's mentality. The unseemly members, as it were. They get more attention. Don't be laughing. We shouldn't be looking at the people with the most obvious gifts. Everybody has a gift. Jesus expects as much from the one with one talent as the one he does with five. Not as much, but as much faithfulness. You understand? If the guy with five talents is only bearing interest, but the guy with, or the sister with one talent is investing it, her reward will be greater than his. In other words, what we're tending to do is what the Corinthians would do it. We're letting people who seem to be the most gifted intimidate the rest of us into thinking we're insignificant. And it begins in chapter one with the hero worship. I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos, I'm a absolute rubbish for all of Jesus. The greatest shall be the servant. The most obvious and important members should look after the other ones. Right? They're all important. Let's go back. There should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. This sister over here is ill. She's just gone through a terrible dilemma a few months ago with surgery, and now she has to go for a biopsy Monday. That should be hurting me. If I have a toothache, my foot's not saying that's his problem. Want me to tell you a true story? This is an absolute confession. It really happened. It happened in the Far East last summer, this summer. I had a problem with my tooth. My, a root canal got infected. I went to a Christian dentist in Singapore. She found something wrong with one of my teeth. Well, she was right what she found out, but she didn't find the root canal. The thing explodes. It's a long flight from Singapore to Auckland. The aspirin's not working. The analgesics aren't working, and the antibiotics aren't working. 
I am desperate. The thing is driving me crazy. This root canal, my dentist did, got infected after some time. I don't know why. I didn't know why. Couldn't get to a dentist. I'm on this plane for hours going nuts. Didn't know what I'm going to do. Now, after I became a Christian, I stopped drinking hard liquor. I never was really into getting drunk anyway. I was more into cocaine and things like that, but I did drink. I didn't have much time for the minor vices. So I went into the duty-free shop, and I got myself the smallest bottle of brandy I could find. And I begin rubbing this brandy on my gums, and it doesn't work. So I take a swig. I thought it was going to kill me. How can people drink this stuff? I can, you know, I, I, to drink hard liquor unmixed is hard to love Okay, wine, beer, mixed drink, but this was, this was, this rocket fuel. I haven't been drunk in years. But on this plane, I kept belting down the brandy, trying to stop the pain. So it got to the point I hated the brandy so much, I decided to opt out for the toothache. When I got off the plane, I went to my friend's house, Mike Lloyd. He used to be the Eland minister in Macclesfield. Now he's our administrator in New Zealand. I get to his house. I open the bottle and I poured the rest of it down the street. <laughs> Take me to a dentist. Yes, I did. When I had that toothache, I couldn't just say, well, I'm just going to think about my feet, or at least my wrists are in good condition, or my heart beats normal, pulse is okay, tough losses. We have another sister over here has just also had major surgery. She developed thrombosis as a result of the surgery. And there's problems going on, and they're not sure exactly what it is. For me to say that's her problem is like me saying my toothache. It's like my foot saying that's my toothache problem. That's a toothache. The emphasis is always on unity. Thank you.